Hey, podcast listeners, Fraser here. So you're listening to a conversation that I had with Brian Dunning from Skeptoid Podcast and Richard Saunders from the Skeptic Zone Podcast. Brian Dunning has a new UFO movie out, which he gave me a sneak preview of, and I had it. I really enjoyed it. It was a great movie, but I had some sort of targeted critique of the movie about the way he presented the Fermi paradox. And so we had a 45 minute long conversation about my perspective on the search for aliens and was able to go into a lot more detail than Brian had in his video. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Brian Dunning from Skeptoid and Richard Saunders from the Skeptic Zone. I had a lot of fun. Hey everyone, Brian here. I am here with Richard Saunders from the Skeptic Zone podcast and Fraser Kane from Astronomy Cast. And we're going to talk about, gosh, I have no idea what we're going to talk about. The idea was to talk about the UFO movie, but who knows where it's going to go. So let's dive into it. So you guys have both seen the UFO movie, right? Yes. And you both loved it and gave it 10 stars and there's nothing wrong with it. And really, I think we're done. That's it. So I want to thank you guys for coming today. Pleasure, Brian. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate it. Okay, so reactions. Rea well, I can give you an interesting reaction because I saw it, uh, I've seen it three times now, uh, once in, a, in an early version, then once when it was finished, and then once with a crowd of people recently in Las Vegas. And the uh, the reaction was, was really positive. It was good. You got a big uh, applause at the end and a very extended Q&A, so people were quite engaged with it. And uh, I, you know, I, I think that's a really good sign of a, of a, a worthwhile effort. You know? when, when we showed it at uh, SETI, the SETI Institute has their movie night, and we showed it there a couple of weeks before that Las Vegas screening, Seth Shostak and I stayed on for 90 minutes doing Q&A, and there was 450 people in the Q&A which wow. was like the biggest online audience I've ever even seen. And that there was so much interest in so many questions, I thought was, I thought yeah. that was very cool. Cause you know, as the filmmaker, of course you're worried there's not gonna be anyone there. Yeah. And nobody's gonna have any questions. But. I think the basic, the basic line in here is it doesn't suck. You know, it's, <laughs> you know, and compared to but, uh, you and I had the, the, the experience some time ago, we went on to, um, was it Tubi, the Tubi uh, streaming system? Yeah. And we were looking at the uh, myriad of UFO documentaries on there. Oh, my God. And they're beyond awful. Mm. They are shocking. They're, uh, it's hard to describe how bad they are. And yours is in a completely different league, and it's aimed at a completely different audience. Or maybe it's not. I did. Maybe it's not. I mean, that's, that's yeah. something to talk about, yeah. uh, is the audience who it's for, because... I did not make it for skeptics. I think that's pretty clear. Um, I made it for UFO believers. And I understand, as you've pointed out, I understand that a lot of them are not going to be open to it at all. And I have seen that feedback from some of them. But I also think that any one of them who sits down and watching it, thinking it's going to be the movie for them, thinking it's going to tell UFO stories and endorse them all as absolute proof of alien visitation, the movie starts off on a hopeful and positive enough note that I think I will at least win their attention and be able to have the opportunity to communicate some real astronomy to them. Yeah, and, and, and you started out with that, like setting the scientific foundation for how people think about aliens and why 
the skies aren't buzzing with UFOs all the time. Like, why are we? Why does it seem like we're alone in the universe? Or where is everybody? And and then shift into let's look at the evidence. The people mm. when people say, oh no, we think we're seeing aliens. Let's look at all that evidence, and y- you know, you find it n- unconvincing. And then you wrap it up in this sort of nice sandwich with, but how, let's look at all the ways that we are trying to expand our knowledge. Let's look into the future. Let's try and actually search for this and get good evidence, the kind of evidence that then everybody would change their minds about. And, and so I thought that structure was great. I mean, I was sort of just thinking technically about how you're like, did you stand out all night? Cause I saw the sunrise. You, it was, it was like evening when you started yeah. and then it went dark and then it started to get light. And then you showed a picture of the sunrise. So you were out there all night doing your presentation, weren't you? More or less. Yeah. The plan was actually, uh, and anyone who's heard me talk about this has probably heard this story. The plan was actually to start in the afternoon and finish in at dark. But, I had uh, six segments on the teleprompter that I was going through, and we'd take a little break between each of them and change the lighting and stuff. And after number four, I was going into hypothermia so badly that I couldn't speak. I was slurring my speech so much we couldn't continue, and we actually had to abandon the shoot. We went back to the house. We were staying at an Airbnb nearby. Um, I took a hot shower, drank some hot water, and then fell asleep. And I woke up at like 1 or 2 a.m., going, oh my God, we don't have the movie finished. This is a disaster. And I woke everyone up, because everyone had just given up on me and gone to bed. And we decided to go back out there at 4.30, which, if we got everything set up, we knew how long it was going to take to shoot the remaining two segments, and we were aiming to finish right as the sun hit the horizon at sunrise. So it worked absolutely beautifully, but it was it was blind luck from from what right. was setting up to be a real disaster. It's interesting you noticed that. Well, so what, the, you <laughs> think about the James Burke connections, classic shot where he points at the Saturn V as and it launches. Up it goes, mm-hmm. right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So I figured it, that was the level, and I was like, watching uh, steam come out of your mouth, and I was like, he's cold. Layers, dude. And, you know, like... I had layers. I had layers. It would have been perfectly fine to throw a big parka on at a certain point and go, it's cold, I'm now wearing a parka, get over it. I should have done that. I I was wearing about two inch thick uh, long underwear under everything, and I had hot packs all over my body, like 50 of them. Yeah. And we had, I had a bottle of hot water right next to me. We had a Tesla sitting there on camp mode at 75 degrees. So we had a warming hut anyone could go into. Yeah. And just with all of that, I was still just spending so much time out there with nothing on my head. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so that, so I was distracted by your distress. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, 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 I don't think that's a common reaction. People just see Brian, they're listening to what he's saying. And this, what, yeah. the reaction we got at the screening was, what are those flashing lights in the background? Yeah, no, the, yeah. the two red lights at the yeah. top of the book. Oh, yeah. right. You, you were the very large array, right? Uh, no, this was the Owens Valley Radio Observatory in uh, uh, Central California. Okay. I thought that was a great touch to have those lights. In yeah, 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 it was wonderful. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, I love seeing the, those. I mean, if you've never been to go to one of those big, like the very large array is the is the best one yeah. in New Mexico. And it's just an astonishing just facility with these gigantic radio dishes. Like if you remember Contact, where yes. Jodie Foster is there with her headphones and there's these big dishes all lined up, that's the place. And if you can, you know, when you think about, about 
places you should go and check out in your life. The the very large array is one of them. the the uh, the thumbnail. What do you call it? The for the video for the video the movie content. Yeah, the poster. They're right. sitting there with all the yeah in yeah the background. yeah. And that's a very large. But array. You, you say the movie wasn't designed for skeptics, but skeptics can get an awful lot out of it. It's like the old the old argument. Oh, why do skeptics go to conventions? They you know they're just preaching to the choir. So well, I want I I enjoy conventions. I like to hear new information as a skeptic. You know. I would love to get into your criticism of the film because I know that you have some things in it that didn't sit well with you, and I would I would oh, really like man. to hear what that is. Oh, yeah. So I mean, okay, like my criticism is just in the beginning, and it's just that the ideas that you thought about started to investigate about like the universe is big the universe is old we were able to create uh the amino acids in the lab with the you know was it the miller yeah yeah miller you know the the that experiment um is a is a very shallow interpretation of the fermi paradox and i find if if you feel like you understand the Fermi paradox, then you don't understand the Fermi paradox. Explain the Fermi paradox. Yeah, I mean, the, sure. so, I mean, the classic Fermi, the Fermi paradox is the universe is big. I don't think I have to sort of define that. But citation needed. Citation needed. <laughs> there are two trillion galaxies in the observable universe. The universe is old. So the universe we believe to be 30.8 billion years old. The chemicals for life have been fairly well established to have been around for about two billion years before the formation of the sun so if there are any alien civilizations out there they've got about a six and 6.5 billion year head start on us and the question that enrico fermi asked was he said like you know where is everybody hmm. And he wasn't saying, like, why haven't we seen them yet? The question that he was really getting at was, why aren't they here? And the analogy that I always like to use is you sort of think about the Hawaiian Islands. You think about, about, about spiders floating on wood through the Pacific Ocean. And they're dying as their log rolls over. But every now and then, every 10,000 years or so, one spider makes it to the Hawaiian Islands. And then that and that spider happened to be to have an egg sac on its back. And so it's able to then replicate. And within a thousand years, you have spiders in every nook and cranny of the entire island of Hawaii. And then it spreads to the nearby islands and so on. And so this was the and so it's not about aliens being out there living in their civilizations. And you 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 mentioned this a couple of times, so I thought that was great, which was that the if we think about what the future of humanity might be, that as we move to uh, creating self-replicating robot probes, as we send those robot probes out towards other star systems, when they arrive at other star systems, they make more versions of themselves, they von Neumann this galaxy, <laughs> then, then you would anticipate that there would be robot factories filling every single nook and cranny of this entire galaxy because the civilizations have had billions and billions of years more time than us yeah. to get this work done. And if we think that we are maybe 100 years from sending out our von Neumann probes, maybe 20, but, you know, more like 100, maybe 200, give it a 1,000, whatever, um, then that is a process that we will begin and we would expect mm -hmm. that somebody else would have done that. And so when I think about this, like, you don't have to search far to find the spiders. 
the spiders found you. We live in a, on a planet that is what a, a maximally utilized world looks like from the perspective of life. Mm -hmm. There is life at the bottom of the ocean. There's life in nuclear reactors. There's life under the ice in Antarctica. There's life two kilometers down in boreholes. Life is, is 10 kilometers up in the atmosphere. Life is used every single part of this planet that it can. But when we look out into the universe, we see wilderness. We see star after star, planet after planet, galaxy after galaxy, that there is nobody using them. And you can say, look, what would a civilization look like when it's using a star? Well, that would that might be a Dyson sphere, right? Well, I, I, I have to point out that we don't yet have a space telescope quali qualified to say that we don't see any biosignatures on that. We, okay. So James Webb isn't right, quite there yet. No, no, for sure. So, right. So, so again, like, it's not why don't we explore the Hawaiian Island to see if we can find a spider. The spider's already found you. And so when we take that analogy to the cosmos and we think about what a civilization could do over the course of 6 billion years, it's a lot. And so, you know, and, and, you know, it's back to this idea of like Dyson spheres and stuff where like humanity has used more energy on this exponential growth curve over the course of the last 10,000 years. That is this smooth exponential curve that continues to increase as we use more and more energy. And so we can extrapolate us continuing to use energy into the future. Now, we don't know what we're going to use it for. Maybe we'll mine crypto. Who knows? Maybe we'll create simulations, <laughs> right? Probably, but yeah. You can actually predict to within a decade when we will be using all of the energy that falls on planet Earth. And it's not long, like a couple hundred years. And you can predict within a decade, if, as long as that growth curve continues, mm -hmm. then there will be a point where we're going to need to use all of the power that's coming from the sun. And you can predict based on the laws of physics, how long it takes to move from star to star, when we will be using all of the energy that's coming from our entire galaxy. And a star that is, that someone is harnessing all of the power from that star yeah. is a very bright infrared source that would be very obvious. A galaxy that is being fully utilized by some advanced civilization would look like this version of a galaxy, but it's an infrared. And so when you just think about the billions and billions of years that aliens could get up to, civilizations could get up to, um, there's this idea by Robert Hansen called the grabby aliens. Grabby? Grabby. Grabby. Yeah. And, you know, the question is, this is what we should see because this is what we will become. And even if we don't become this and somebody else will, for every thousand civilizations that rises up and goes, no, no, no. We or something gonna, else happens to them along the way, whatever that yeah, may be. Yeah. yeah, 999 of them choose to stay home. They yeah. choose to live in simulations. They choose to to be at, at in live in harmony with their environment. One goes, I want it all, and goes for it. Mm -hmm. And it's the ones who, you know, it's the spider that decided, I want to I want to explore every nook and cranny of the Hawaiian Island. That's the one you see. You don't see the ones that failed. You don't see the ones that chose to stay home. You see the one mm -hmm. that went for it. And so for every thousand aliens who don't pull it off and they're quiet one is going for it and so what we would expect to see as we look out into the universe is not wilderness which is what we see an untouched cosmic wilderness what we should see is a bustling metropolis of alien civilizations overlapping with each other 
as they attempt to fill every nook and cranny of the universe with life or or whatever they want robots who knows okay my my basic criticism yep with with this idea yep. is that it equates a spider on a log making it to Hawaii with interstellar travel. Right. Yeah. So have you those ever, are two yeah. sure, have very you, different things. Have you ever heard of Oumuamua? Yes, I have heard of Oumuamua. Right. So Oumuamua yes. is a is a rock, maybe a comet, that made the journey from another star. Yeah. Um, and it was the first, now second to call Comet Borisov. And based on those two, it's believed there are tens of thousands of interstellar objects drifting oh, sure. in between okay. the, the star systems. Yeah. And so people have done the math, but like what like how long would it take you to 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 fully settle an entire galaxy? And it would take you, you know, say you're going 10% the speed of light. The universe is so the galaxy is 130,000 light years across. It would take you 1.5 say million years to through exponential growth arrive at every single star system and fully settle it in the entire Milky Way. Is that all? Yeah, 1.5 million years. And if you're going Oumuamua speed, it yes. would take you... 10 million years. Right. Nevertheless. Nevertheless. And, yeah. and, but but here's, here's what gets crazy, is that if you're like, well, okay, fine, you know what, that, you know, I don't want to make that thousand-year journey to go from one star system to star system. So instead, I'm going to wait for the movements of the stars to drift close enough to each other that the journeys are like you're hopping from stepping stone to stepping stone. It That's only, a long game. It only adds wow. about 10 million years to the journey. Huh. So in other words, what well, if you, so on the one hand, so, and then the, the things like going from here to, you know, a few thousand astronomical units away from earth, yeah. and you could make, you could, you could cross the gap between every single star system in the entire galaxy by waiting for the optimal trajectory to move. And not to mention, we've now discovered the existence of all these rogue planets. So it's believed now that there are the same, if not maybe dozens of times more of these worlds floating in between star systems that are like Jupiters with planetary systems and could even have liquid water on them because of the tidal interactions between. So, so now you think there's actually more lily pads to hop to from place to place. And so, Yes, it is. So if you are patient, if you are a robot and you're like, I'm just going to do like, whatever's the most efficient thing. I'm going to wait my, bide my time. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait a hundred thousand years before I make these journeys. You still, it's still a, a, a blink of an eye and you have reached every single nook and cranny of the entire galaxy. And in fact, can then set off to within what is your reachable universe. So when you look out in the observable universe, 96% of the universe has already crossed over the cosmological horizon. It is right. accelerating yeah. away from us never get there, right? beyond the speed of light. Yeah. And so we can never reach it. But 4% is within our cosmological. And so, and, you know, within a couple of hundred years, if an alien civilization reaches, figures out a way to get to 99% the speed of light transportation, they can colonize millions of galaxies to out to without about a, about a billion light years range. And so the Grabby Aliens hypothesis is that you would see these aliens grabbing as much territory as possible. And we don't see any of it. We, we see nothing but stars. Well, you think that, I mean, we don't know what the odds or the likelihood of well, I don't, I life don't... arriving in the first place is. We only got one example. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it, like, 
that very that very basis thing is to say we could be in like we don't know what the odds are of life arising in the first place it could be and so we only have one example and so until we find another place where where life has arisen yeah. we will we can't do that but we can use the non-detection of life as a proxy to set some estimates at what's out there in other words is it spiders six feet away from you or is it a rock with no spiders and you can tell based on where you find yourself what is most likely out there you're saying even even if an intelligent civilization is exceedingly rare the galaxy let alone the universe is big enough that there should be a time, certain percent time is what there would be at least two billion of these yeah. grabby alien civilizations right. yeah yeah, yeah. So I, the, even if i think that's one, too speculative i think if there's one you know no matter like let's say there's only one civilization appears in the milky way then it will most likely wipe itself out it seems like right yeah. but if there's a thousand then 999 will yeah, wipe themselves out yeah. one will pull it off mm -hmm. and it will fill the entire well just ask universe. the dinosaurs they'll tell you right and they so will. right and so you yeah. can kind of observe the universe as it is and make some estimates at where we stand in that in that ratio and it's more on the life is exceedingly rare i tend to think that's probably yeah yeah the case yeah. or or in our case within our observable universe or within our reachable universe life is unique because again you know if you can have two you probably have a thousand and if you have a thousand one pulls it off and fills up the entire cosmos you see i i, I don't agree with the with the conclusion you're making that the lack of the lack of visitation that we observe the lack of life that we observe now with inadequate instruments to detect life even but the lack of any visitors to Earth, the lack of any evidence of, that we've been visited. I think you're jumping so far ahead by saying um, that means there's nobody anywhere because if there was, at least one of them would have become one of these grabby alien civilizations and expanded past us at the speed of light. Um, what I think it's consistent with and where I think is a more reasonable place to stop is that nobody has figured out both the faster than light travel and the Christmas tree problem. Because what you're suggesting in the grabby alien hypothesis is that people just say, let's just wait for, is it they wait for an Oumuamua to come through, they load it up with equipment and let it continue on its way? No. And say, no, it robot, expands everywhere? That robots are patient. That's the, that's the, that a robot can wrap its mind around a journey that's going to take 10,000 years. Robot doesn't care. Hmm. I don't know that that really satisfies the... Like, if you want to change your speed to 1% the speed of light, then it turns into 10 million years. You've, you've got an intractable energy problem. I mean... No, it's not intractable because we know that, like, like we've sent Voyager 2 towards some other star system. And it's going to take 50,000 years to get there. So we did it. But it's a dead hunk of metal. And yeah, it will be by the time robot. it gets there. But you, yeah. you would expect them, right? <laughs> but what if a robot took an asteroid, set up shop at an asteroid, made the trajectory towards a nearby star system, dismantled the asteroid from within, kept itself restored, and arrived at the planetary system, and then began work there so after have, a thousand-year journey? I, I think you're, you're first of all you're starting with the presumption of an impractical energy source, that and, and that something can then wake itself up 
often enough to check and see, hey, have I reached the star system yet? Yeah, and so like, well, what kind of technology? No, no, I mean, like nothing I'm describing violates the laws of physics. Again, back to a little more. No, it doesn't violate the laws of physics. Right. It's just impractical. It, it it takes practicality to such an extreme mm. that I don't. It's it's not a decision that. <laughs> Why would they do it? Why would they do it? Why would they do it? However, you're right that if there's if there's life anywhere, there's life everywhere, right. and at least one of them would have, so, would have tried. So let me give you a reason to say why they do it. Yeah, and that's to stop other people from doing it. So, so the alien that controls that, that doesn't make any sense. Sure. Well, hear me out. So the alien that controls the reason, like like life, is always about the control of resources on Earth. Whoever can essentially get access to energy get access to chemicals is the one that can thrive. And the one that fails to do that is the one that dies out. And so you can imagine, and like, I'm not, I'm not saying this is a good thing. Like I'm like, like humans are bad. Humans are awful at this kind of thing. We treat each other terribly for these kinds of reasons in the past, hmm. but you can see this play out again and again and again. There's a limited amount of sunlight. There's a limited amount of chemicals. There's a limited amount of food that life fights to get it. And when you think about the universe as the next scale of that, then you can imagine robots saying, you know, if, if their goal is to calculate the ultimate answer to life, the universe and everything, mm -hmm. they're going to want to make the biggest possible computer to do it. And they're going to need all of the resources of the universe to do this. So wow. we initiate a multi-million year process that has a one in a zillion chance of success as our best strategy from preventing some completely hypothetical other civilization from initiating their own multi-million year process that will eventually take the uh, take the flowers and the oil and the green trees from Earth. Um, That's well, it's well, right, but but right. you're thinking from a human perspective. No, no, no. Like, I'm just, just saying that's that's why I say it exceeds mm -hmm. any any reasonable practicality. Well, but I think we have plenty of examples historically. We do of human beings setting their sights abroad and thinking about how they could get their hands on resources. Okay, yeah, but I don't think you can make that comparison because you're talking about travels on Earth and you're comparing them to interstellar yeah, travel. Yeah, so I, so I think... That's not even apples to oranges. That's, no, no, and I, for sure. And I think where I will totally agree with you is if it can be demonstrated that there's no value in acquiring the resources from another star system. Yeah. Here's, here's an interesting analogy to the, to the patient robot idea. Um, and this, this comes from the old Skeptoid archives. You guys have probably heard stories of miners or people building a bridge or digging a ditch, and they find a rock, and they break the rock open with a shovel, and a frog jumps out of it. Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> There's a, what, a Warner Brothers cartoon. Can that really happen? <laughs> no. Okay. All right. And, and here's why. So uh, I, people have done research on this, and what you're talking about is a, is a frog that can basically put itself into a, a state of hibernation um, oh, such that it can be in there for long enough to rock to, for, to form. So who knows, thousands, millions of years, whatever it is, even if it's 100 years, a relatively short period of time, for the rock to split open and the frog comes back to life and jumps out requires a lot happening in the metabolism of this frog. So the research became, what does it take for an animal or some kind of a being to be in a state where its metabolism can be awakened, and it's got to be burning energy to be in that state. So even to be completely inert, 
it has to burn energy. There's no such thing as completely inert because that means dead and cannot be restarted or self-restarted anyway. Right. So I see the same issue with, with the patient robots. And yes, that's an engineering problem. And yes, there probably is an engineering answer to it. Well, but I just stop you right there. If there probably is, then someone's found it. Then someone's yeah, found okay. it. Of all the millions okay. of civilizations, right. someone will have found it. But it's just it's just one more variable that I mean, you're you're talking about so many variables to get to this point because the easiest thing first to do is to listen with radio telescopes and to look with 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 telescopes. Yeah, and I know you want you sort of started in on that. I would love yeah. to talk about that because because I find you know the third the last part of your movie talks a lot about that and I yeah. you know that's all incredibly exciting to me and they, and and sort of just that feedback was you know you explained a couple of ideas and like I know of dozens of ideas that people have proposed yeah I think I talked covered three of them yeah you covered three but yeah. there's like some of them are will blow your mind when you think about how clever they are like the the idea of biosignatures this idea that there is a kind of chemical that you could detect in the atmosphere of another planet um you know, and you think about the kinds of things that are evidence of life here on Earth. We've got methane, we've got uh, carbon dioxide, we've got oxygen, we've got ozone. Uh, these are all produced by life, but there are analogies of other kinds of non-organic processes that can produce them as well. Really? Yeah. Okay. So you, yeah. so cows can burp methane, yeah. and volcanoes can burp methane. Okay. Um, I see your point. Yeah. Yeah, and so the and so the problem that you have is so far the astrobiology community is still trying to hash out what is a telltale sign of a biosignature. Uh, interesting. Okay. Um, and and so far they have and and the, the thing that I always sort of hear about is like you think about Venus. Like they think they found phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus, which is one of the most telltale yeah. signatures. And yet the scientific okay. community argues about it. And Venus is right there. <laughs> you can send a spacecraft. You can lay, go into the atmosphere. You can sniff it. You can, right? And so, um, and all of the times that life was found in the past, life was found on Mars in the Viking experiment. Life was found in the meteorite at Allen Hills. Life was found on, on, the, on Venus. It's all inconclusive. So be ready for an inconclusive result for the detections of biosignatures around other worlds. The the interesting solutions are probably interesting combinations of chemicals. So you're going to get methane, oxygen, carbon dioxide, ozone in ways that we can't figure out how they could inter be produced in an inorganic fashion. That is going to be very interesting and very compelling. Um, and then, and so chlorophyll. Chlor right, chlorophyll. I mean, you don't detect the presence of chlorophyll. You detect it through the red edge, through infrared. Yeah. So you can see it, and and so, and so it's going to be this kind of scientific mystery where you're going to add thing after thing after thing to go. We believe there's a high likelihood of life on this world, but it will remain inconclusive for a long time. What's really exciting about techno signatures is that they are conclusive. They tell you with almost a shadow of a doubt that there is life. Oh, and it happens to be advanced, uh, an advanced civilization, but also is life. And, and that is, so people are probably going to find that they're going to want to use um, technosignatures to get the, the, the absolute certainty that the biosignatures probably won't give us for an incredibly long period of time. I was talking with an astrobiologist uh, about what kind of what kind of technosignatures does the Earth pr project that are that are most noticeable? 
And their answer really interested me. It was unexpected. It was concrete. Yeah. It's like the, the reflection of concrete that we've got in our cities. Oh, and everything. right. Yeah. Right, yeah. Right. What? Yeah. So there's a, so a couple of years ago, um, NASA hosted the first techno signatures conference and a bunch of like a bunch of people who were not like necessarily astrobiologists, but had been doing some thinking about this and they all kind of knew each other with these informal networks, you know, through SETI and things like that. They came together and had this first techno signatures conference and have had a couple now, I think two or three at this point. And have been just sort of collaborating and trying to think of every one of those kinds of things, concrete, like what is every sign that intelligent civilizations give off, that we give off, and you think about everything that humanity does, these are giving off signs into the universe, and then you sort of let your imagination run wild about what could a future version of humanity do, and then what are some versions that maybe humanity would never do. And so there was, they're up to, they're into like in the 40s now of number of individual ideas hmm. that people have thought of as techno signatures. And what the advantage of a techno signature over a biosignature is that they are unambiguous, that each one of these signals that have been considered. So the 40 things are unambiguous. Unambiguous. What are 40 things that are unambiguous? Right. Okay. Well, yeah, or no, I mean, there are, what are 40 things that civilizations could give off? Most of them are unambiguous, okay. right? That, that wouldn't happen. Right, yeah. And so, and I'll, and I'll give you like fairly, like some maybe would be a little ambiguous, but others definitely wouldn't. So SETI is the classic example of this, right? right? That we're searching for some kind of signal being beamed directly at Earth from some alien civilization. And they're going to use very specific wavelengths, the radio spectrum, that are not produced in any way, shape, or form by nature in those kinds of ways. And so if you receive that signal, like the wow signal is a good example of this, yeah. although you know, I think it was a reflected signal from Earth. But if you receive this signal then you know for certain that an alien civilization is producing the signal and they're sending it your way and you've you've discovered life in the universe you've solved the biosignatures problem and you've and you've found aliens right boom 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 done um and there's so many more of these they're great um like for example when you think about the kinds of things that we do yeah we are producing chlorofluorocarbons or we're producing chlorofluorocarbons there's a whole range of these chemicals that humanity has produced as part of our industrial process that have filled the atmosphere we argued about it a little bit at the beginning james webb theoretically is right at the reach of being able to detect chlorofluorocarbons in the atmosphere of a world that's within about 100 light years of earth so if Earth was 100 light years away, James Webb could see, could detect the chlorofluorocarbons in our atmosphere. There is the, you know, instead of the directed transmission of signals, there's the indirect. You, know, you talk about, yeah, are the aliens going to be laughing over I Love Lucy from the 1950s? Probably not. The signals are too big. Too weak. But we do have radio sources on Earth that are very powerful and very concentrated, like air traffic control systems. And so the square kilometer array, which is being developed in Australia and in, in uh, South Africa, will be so sensitive that it could detect the air traffic control system of Earth from about 100 light years away. And so again, well, you could just like, and this is not like, this is not the directed transmission. This is the indirect transmission of these signals that they're just going about their daily lives and they're just putting out this radiation, this electromagnetic radiation in very specific wavelengths that are unambiguous. So while I am, you know, less convinced that we're going to get that 
boom, we found life, woohoo, from just straight up biosignature. I'm really excited by the work that's being done to think about technosignatures because they bring the certainty, even though maybe the observations will be more difficult or more rare. To circle back to your documentary, there's a segment in it where you have an interesting uh, star field galaxy and you show all the exoplanets. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a video produced by, by JPL. I didn't create Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah I thought that was marvelous. So. It is. With exoplanets. And you said in your documentary, which everybody should see, <laughs> you said by the time this documentary comes out, this number might be low. Do you know what the current oh, yeah. state of exoplanets is? It's like 5,000. 5,500, isn't it? 800. 5,800. Maybe 50, Yeah, I forget the number. It's, around, it's in the mid-5,000s yeah. now with over 10,000 exoplanetary candidates as well. But So I found a paper where they were extrapolating into the future based on the the rate of planetary discovery so far and so they they guessed by 2050 we'll probably know of about 50 million exoplanets it's an, it's just insane right? and so like the re the, the best techniques for discovering exoplanets have yet to come online um direct imaging astrometry are sort of two really powerful ways. what's what's the most common way now is, is the dip these the transit method the transit, yeah the transit yeah. the dip the, in the light yeah, yeah the transit method and the radio velocity method and microlensing which my daughter has used that telescope to to do with a photometer yeah 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 you can you can do follow-on observations of these tens of thousands of of or ten thousand plus candidate exoplanets amateurs can go do fallen observations and try to discover, confirm that there's an exoplanet there because they've only seen one transit. And they say, go, we found one. Hey, astronomical community, see if you can find the others. We're moving on. And so then <laughs> other astronomers watch that star for the next transit. And it could, you know, we think about a planet like Earth, you're going to need oh, right. 365 days yeah. to see the next transit. Yeah. And then you're going to want to see 365 days to get the confirmation. That gets you your three light dips. That tells you there's a planet there. Who's got time to watch 10,000 individual star systems to detect those planets? <laughs> and so that's, and so the, the, the uh, exoplanetary hunters really rely on amateurs to help wow. oh, find yeah. these things. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, it that that's one thing that I don't think a lot of people are aware of. Um, it, in fact, it's an argument against the uh, the the conspiracy theory that NASA has all these yeah. secrets that they jealously guard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. NASA doesn't produce the data; it comes from random amateurs all over the world. Yeah, yeah. And people people don't really appreciate. Oh yeah, how little data NASA actually creates themselves, and and how it's people like us with equipment like this. Well, yeah, it, or just a thousand researchers at a hundred different universities yeah. and observatories that are collaborating on a project and probably more so that than people like us and telescopes like yeah. that but yes it comes from so many sources totally and that for nasa to be some kind of a gatekeeper <laughs> of the secret information yeah, like, is a little bit silly i don't know if you ever looked at the paper when the kilonova was discovered in 2017 with the two neutron stars colliding with each other oh sure yeah, yeah. there were thousands and thousands of people names on the paper oh yeah it just like because because every observatory on earth was called upon to observe it's hard to keep secrets huh? yeah, everyone, yeah, yeah everyone on earth was called on to observe the afterglow of the collision and then everyone who was in any way tangentially involved in this observation got their name on the paper and so there was <laughs> like if you look at the list of names it just goes on for page after page after page after page and then finally they get to the results 
And it's because it was just, it was the lar- you know, one of the largest scientific collaborations that I think had ever been done. And so, yeah, you're going to keep a secret from from 3,000 separate astronomers, each of which can't wait to tell everybody they know <laughs> well, that, what they that, found. No, right. Right. That is a, a conversation about conspiracy theories and NASA. That's that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, that's another conversation. It's a, yeah. Absolutely. In fact, I think we've gone on long enough. Let's, let's wrap this up with each of us giving, in 30 seconds or less, our thoughts on alien life in the universe. Grant, starting from the premise that we don't know, and so this is only our own personal... Yeah, I, I'd, I'd be interested to know if I've changed your mind in any way. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, l- let me answer that. Um, I mean, the idea that if there was life anywhere, there would be life everywhere, I agree with. Um, in the film, I really narrowed that down to a few possibilities. We don't have this, we don't have this, we don't have this, and so therefore we don't have anything. And it's much larger of a question than that. I I do think I do think you pushed me further in that direction with this conversation. Um, however, you didn't push me past the fact that interstellar travel is that the laws of physics just make some of the more exotic explanations um, impossible. So I, I don't completely buy if there was life anywhere at all, then we would have the grabber alien civilizations. Right. And that I would say that that's my thirty second summary. Yeah. I still think there's I still think there is life everywhere out there. Just hope. I, I, I certainly well, hope. hold on to your, well, hold on but, your hope. Yep. Well my, my policy for for years is how could I possibly know? We can't possibly know. We can speculate like we've been doing. It's not going to change what's happening out there. I can't see why there couldn't be life out there, but you're right. If there was one in a, in a thousand civilizations that could do it, it should have been done by now, which we get back to the paradox. But we remain hopeful. <laughs> As we say, we remain hopeful. Yeah. But if there's not life out there, then so be it. What are we going to do? You know, we can't just wish life out in the cosmos. Yeah. And I think... Now, we can do a lot of wishing. We can do a lot of wishing. <laughs> but I also think it's a tough road for, uh, we might talk about skepticism at some stage, for skeptics because um, the popular imagination has it that aliens are buzzing around and they watch, you know, people watch Star Trek and Star Wars. Let's jump into hyperspace, Chewie. Zoom, off they go. And it, it, so to many people, going to another system is simply easy. And what happens? And aliens can do it. So, I mean, I currently am unconvinced that there's any aliens in the universe. So if you like say, what do you believe for Israel? I believe we're alone. That's my, because, because the alternative is too awful to contemplate, which is that we're doomed. That, that whatever f- horrible fate befell every other civilization is about to be our fate. That's, you know, and that's what that means, right? So if every it, advanced civilization comes to the comes to the end, comes to the crunch because they okay. blow themselves up, right. or the asteroid comes, right. or right. Okay, yeah. And if there's no way to get past that, yeah. then that is our fate. That's as what's well. going to happen. And so I don't like that. So I choose Rallo. <laughs> but I, but I think, but I, uh, and and yet I'm really fascinated. But but I think we should check. And so that's why I'm I, literally that's why I do my job is that I'm really excited about every way that anybody has ever thought of to check. Yeah. And I and I watch the them trying because that is not the outcome that I want. I want us to be one member of a giant galactic federation, and it sucks that we're not. 
We're going to have this conversation again in 30 years when we have those techno signatures. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait. And on that note, I'm Brian Dunning with Skeptoid.com. I'm Richard Saunders from the Skeptic Zone podcast. I'm Fraser Kane, publisher of Universe Today. <laughs>